All right, well, welcome. Those of you who are at home, I think you should be able to see the whiteboard uh, behind me. I hope to get to that at some point. You should also have this handout, which says at the top of it, Understanding Dispensationalism. You got that? Um, uh, this is the 11th, good grief, is it, in our series entitled Exploring Eschatology. And um, I'll give you a bit of a recap of where we've got to with all that stuff in a couple of minutes. But first, um, well, f- welcome. There's one or two new faces I'm looking at here. One over there and one over here. I've already had a chance to say hello to uh, one of you. It's great to see you. You're most welcome. And I um, hope you enjoy this evening. Let me lead us in prayer. And then we'll kick off and see where on earth we end up this evening. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious Father, we are thankful to you for every good gift that comes from your hand. We thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you for its depth and wisdom. We thank you for your care for us in speaking to us. And we pray that this evening as we do something, I guess, a little different, trying to understand a way of reading the Bible and of understanding history that really differs quite radically from that at least which we uh, teach and uh, seek to live by here at All Saints. We pray you'd give us understanding, uh, charity and uh, grace, and yet clarity in uh, accurately appraising and critiquing uh, where appropriate. Uh, Above all, we pray that you'd help us to see Christ magnified as he truly is and ought to be, as the goal of all history, the reason for all things, our purpose for being and uh, your aim in building a church to give to him as a gift, which we gladly acknowledge ourselves to be. And so we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me just give you a quick recap of where we'd got to uh, four weeks ago before we took a brief break for a mini-series on uh, diaconal ministry and preparation for diaconal ministry. That was uh, uh, necessary in order to speed along some pressing priorities here at All Saints. We urgently need deacons and we will be opening nominations for the diaconate at some point later this year. So I wanted to give everybody a chance just to think through what it takes to be a great deacon so we'll know who to vote for. And those men who uh, may be nominated will also be able to prepare for that well, as well as their wives will also. But before that, we we had 10-part series on uh, eschatology. And just, I mean, how do we cram 10 hour and a quarter sessions into two minutes? Um, The whole of human history, in fact, the whole of history, period, is the unfolding of God's relationship with humanity. God's relationship with his people takes the form of a covenant. Covenant just means a relationship, but it's a particular kind of relationship. It's one in which the expectations and obligations and blessings of the relationship are well-defined, written down, as are the curses or sanctions for breaking the relationship. So by, by illustration, marriage is a covenant. It's not just like, oh, I'm friends with uh, Alex or I'm friends with uh, Doug or I'm friends with Pastor Shaw, where the content of that friendship isn't really stipulated. I'm married to Nicole and there are well-defined expectations, both on our part and on God's. God commits himself to relate to us in a certain way. And the character of the relationship that he commits himself to with us is the climax of 
a developing series of stages beginning actually from before the foundation of the world, but certainly with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and finally everything coming to its climax in Christ. And so every unfolding chapter of that relationship brings new elements to it. So for example, in the Adam chapter, you see that God's purpose is that he should have men and women ruling over the world in his name, bringing it to fullness and richness and bringing out all the latent beauty within it. That they should honour him in marriage and in work and in rest. In the days of Noah, all those things get intensified and it also becomes clear that God is determined to preserve the world in spite of its violence. So the sanctions for murder are put in place. Um, he, he makes it very, very clear that his grace extends down through the generations um, and in fact, that becomes even clearer in the days of Abraham, where in Genesis 17, um, he says, I'll be God not just to you, but to your children after you. In the days of Moses, we discover that the purpose of the law given in the days of Moses is that there should not just be this one little people, the people of Israel, fulfilling and obeying God's purposes, but that they should be a light for all the other nations of the world. Think of what Deuteronomy says about the purpose of the giving of the law. It's so that this community of people whom God has called, the offspring of Abraham and all those hangers-on from Egypt and so on, and the 318 men born in his house but not of his biological offspring, those, that community should be a light to all the other nations of the world. So they'll, they'll look at Israel and think, my goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful to live like that? And you just see the hints of that starting to work at one or two moments in Israel's history in the days of Ruth or in the days of Solomon, especially, with the Queen of Sheba and all those other kings and so on. So, uh, speaking of Solomon, uh, Solomon uh, brings to the fore new aspects of the relationship between God and his people. In particular, that um, the central figure in mediating the blessings between God and his people is the king. And by the king's conduct, will the people stand or fall? So from David and Solomon onwards, basically, if the king is righteous, the people do fine. And if the king is wicked, Lord, help them. Because first and second kings, you get that narrative about, it's not really about what the people did. It's about what the king did. And if so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're all going to, well, we're in for a miserable generation or two. And so you get to the end of all that expectation, and you're thinking, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a righteous and wise and godly king, a perfect king, who could bring to fulfillment all those promises. And of course, that's what Christ is. Christ means king. It means literally anointed one. But kings and priests and prophets were anointed under the older covenants. And so we explored in some detail the ways in which God has brought to a climax in Christ all of the building up expectations that have been set in place for ages and generations beforehand. And we are in Christ So we are from those nations which Jesus commanded his disciples to disciple in Matthew 28. We are among those nations which um, Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah 2. The nations will stream to Zion, not literally going to Zion. The dispensationalists would say we will, more on that in a second. But, But coming to the one in whom Zion is fulfilled, Christ, and his bride, the church. And uh, we see... Just to pick another example, we see in our own families the, the promise of God being God to you and to your children after you, Genesis 17, fulfilled in Christ, Luke 1, Acts 2. And I'm looking straight here at a lady in front of me as mother of 10 believing children. 
Well, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> right? Of course it's going to be the case. And it's a fulfillment of God's gracious promises fulfilled in Christ. And so that's eschatology, right? That is, a, that is a Christian doctrine of history which tells us what the future is going to be like. And then we saw at the end of the 10th session um, some of the, the explicit descriptions of the future of the church, like in the parables of Jesus. It will be like a rock that becomes a mountain that fills a whole earth, or it will become like a tree that's so big that all the birds of the air can nest in its branches, or like the leaven that works its way through the whole batch of the dough, so it's all leavened. In other words, the world will be gradually, with ups and downs, over a long period of time, transformed so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it won't have escaped your notice that not everybody is of this opinion. And here, particularly in uh, the southern part of the United States, there is an alternative understanding of Scripture and of history which is very, very widespread, very uh, influential. In fact, so influential in some circles that People, Christians who are in those circles, really either can't imagine that there are Christians who don't think like them, or if they can imagine, they must be heretics for not thinking like us. And that school of thought is dispensationalism. And no series on Christian eschatology in Texas would be complete without a, a session on dispensationalism, right? Because you all want to see if I can draw a rapture chart from memory. We'll see whether I can, right? Um, hands up if you've ever been in contact with, been in a church that espouses, had friends who are dispensationalists or disp- dispensational. Okay, all right. <laughs> in that case, I'll just hand somebody else the microphone, right? But what, what I want to do is I, I want to try and help us to understand this movement, where it came from. Uh, not, so some caveats, right? Not with the aim of going out and smashing all your dispensationalist friends and neighbours over the head with my Bible studies. That's not the goal. The goal is partly to understand our our culture and our Christian subculture. It's also partly to understand by way of contrast the position that we have outlined and that we hold as the right way of reading Scripture. Because sometimes when when you... you teach something positively, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then you say, so it's not this. And they're like, what? Oh, oh, oh. And they really get what you were saying positively when you say what it's not. So maybe there'll be some of that as well. And it may raise some questions. It may, it may cause some jigsaw puzzle pieces to slot into place about why your previous but one pastor said all those strange-sounding things that you can't quite remember what it was he said. Anyway. Let's just kick off. I've got these handouts you've got here. Those of you who are at home, uh, I sent this as a PDF about an hour and a bit ago, so you should be able to find it in your email inboxes. Let me just give you a a hint of the influence of dispensationalism. Consider first these names. John Nelson Darby, Cyrus Schofield, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, Charles Feinberg, Arno Gabeline, J. Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, John F. Walford, they are some of the most influential evangelical names from the last 150 years. And John Walford was, just take one example, was president of da- Dallas Theological Seminary, a bastion of dispensationalism just up the road in Dallas. That Dallas, the Texas Dallas, next door to Fort Worth, Dallas, for decades until 1980-something, I think. And, of course, John MacArthur, the last one on the list, he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, which I think probably means 
that some dispensationalists regard him as a bit of a compromiser. But nonetheless, probably one of the most influential evangelicals from the last hundred years. Probably one of the most influential Christians in the last hundred years. I mean, think Billy Graham, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, John MacArthur. Different, all different from each other, but the influence he has had on literally tens of millions of people is hard to understate. I just looked at his um, second bullet point there, his Grace to You uh, website. He's, he's been broadcasting on the radio like every day for how long? Is it like 50 years or something? I mean, it feels like forever. It's, and what a marvelous work he's done, by the way, in, in getting the word of God out to tens of millions of people. But I looked on the website today, and the current series, big splash screen in the middle of the front page, was, quote, the rapture and the day of the Lord. Right? So there he is with a message for tens of millions of people, which is not the message that I've been sharing with you for the last few months, right? So what on earth is going on? In 2003, a survey was conducted um, by uh, Pew Research, which, and this is 20 years ago, so it might, the figures will be somewhat different now. But back then, just 20 years ago, 36% of Americans and 63% of white evangelicals believe, quote, the state of Israel fulfills the biblical prophecy about Jesus' second coming. Just think about that for one second. Nearly two-thirds of white evangelicals, about 51% of black evangelicals. I don't know why they broke it down like that. I think because there are some demographic differences in... Um, the, the kinds of churches that black people and white people tend to go to, especially in the American South, which is, of course, uh, another story. But something like 60% or just under 60% of evangelicals of whatever ethnic background in America want to say that the second coming, the predictions of the second coming of Christ have something to do with the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. And that is a distinctively dispensationalist doctrine. Ever read a Left Behind novel? Really? <laughs> How long ago? Come on. Right before you were saved. Okay. Well, we want to hear that story sometime. But um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' um, Left Behind series, which I think is 20-something books, which is basically a fictionalized um, series based on what they take to be true eschatology, and it's dispensational eschatology, uh, sold in ex- nearly 80 million copies over the years. George W. Bush, that's what he said, as president in 2001, at my first meeting of my National Security Council, I told them that a top foreign policy priority of my administration is the safety and security of Israel. My administration will be steadfast in supporting Israel against terrorism and violence. Why would he say such a thing? The answer is because literally tens of millions of people who voted for him think that the safety and security of Israel is key to the fulfillment of the promises of God. And you see that in present-day American foreign aid spending, as you can see in the two charts 
I've reproduced for you. Look at the one on the right first. This tells you where U.S. foreign aid is going. Now, this is back in 2019. The top recipient was Afghanistan with $4.8 billion a year. That's just in in, um, the total amount, not amount per capita. Of course, Afghanistan at that time had a population of about 35 or 36 million. Israel, which comes in second with nearly as much, three quarters as much, has a population at that time of about 8 million. If you look at the foreign aid per capita, Israel is miles ahead, absolutely miles ahead of any other country that the U.S. supplies foreign aid to. And Statista uh, break down the aid into uh, military and other. So, for example, in Afghanistan, it's kind of a bit of both because obviously there's military aid back when there was an American presence in Afghanistan, but also some kind of uh, food aid and so on. In some places like Nigeria, it's mostly um, uh, humanitarian. So if you look at the breakdown for Israel, it's all military. Per capita, I'll do the math in my head, it's over, at least as of 2015, more than five times as much foreign aid per capita was given to Israel than any other country. And it's all given for the sake of the military defense of the state of Israel founded in 1948 and jiggled around ever since. And obviously, one of, there's a bunch of different reasons why you might want to promote stability in the Middle East, oil, Islamic extremism. But it's obvious to anybody who knows where this policy comes from that part of the background is the widespread support for the state of Israel among American dispensationalist Christians. Now, I'm not now saying we should have any kind of negative attitude towards Israel. I don't want to make any comment on Israeli, Palestinian, Arab politics. I make no comment at all about that. I'm simply making the observation, look where American money goes, and ask yourself why. And now can you see why this viewpoint is so, so important to understand? Where does it come from? Because it is so influential. You with me? Yes, sir, you had a question? Excuse me, you're charged US for a going. Who is DRC? Mm-hmm. DRC is the Democratic Republic of Congo, a Central African country. Yeah. Large Central African country. Like very large compared to Israel. <laughs> and still gets a tiny amount of aid compared to well, still it's a fair amount of aid actually, but Okay. So all, all that is to say you might have grown up your entire life in all saints or church like it and think, well, Dispens Wattleism? <laughs> this is to many outsiders, this is just certainly in the South, American Christianity. American Christianity in the South is, to a first approximation, dispensationalism. So where does it come from? And what is it? All right. Let's do a bit of a history lesson. Um, just before we jump into it, just a, just a couple of caveats. This is really complicated. I, this handout, I mean, what was I thinking? I mean, really... Two in three weeks. You know, it's, um, I'm going to try and get through it. And, and, and there will be many, many things that I don't comment on. Uh, there'll be many oversimplifications and so on. And those of you who've had some background in this movement will have questions and we'll try and pick them up and deal with them. Um, also, I want to say again, this is not a tool to bash your friends. And never, never, never make the mistake of identifying a person with the movement that they claim to belong to. I don't want to be identified with somebody else's idea of Presbyterianism. 
right? Talk to me, is what I want to say to my Roman Catholic friends or my Baptist friends. So when we're talking to dispensationalists, let's talk to the human being in front of us. And try and have this awareness may help us in those conversations, but never impute to somebody a view which happens to come from your pastor's summary of the broad school of thought that they come from, because it might not be that they hold that view, at least not so clearly. All right, let's jump in. I want to talk about two major figures who really kicked the ball down the hill. And the first, I'm sorry to say, is an Englishman. Yes, that's right. This is probably our worst theological export. An Englishman by the name of John Nelson Darby, born in 1800, who was an early member of and really shaped in the early days the Plymouth Brethren movement. Some of you have heard of the Plymouth Plymouth Brethren movement. It's a very small now British denomination. Darby was an Anglican clergyman. I believe he was in the Church of Ireland. Um, But he became frustrated with the corruption that he saw in the, I guess, the mid and early Victorian church in Britain and Ireland. And eventually he resigned his position as, I believe he was a curate, which is kind of like an assistant pastor. And as he reflected on the experience he'd had in the Church of England, and the Church of England in Victoria, Victorian England was, there, there was a, um, a uh, superficial veneer of Church of England religiosity everywhere. Uh, but it's true that it didn't really go more than skin deep in most places. And there's a whole story to tell there about the failures of the Victorian church and the, the likelihood that that's actually in part why we ended up with state education, for example, because the church backed away from providing education and hospital care, and so the, the state said, of course, we'll have a go. So there's a bunch of stuff to talk about there. But suffice it to say that Darby was not having it, and he left. And eventually, in fact, he, he came to reject the whole idea of an institutionalized church and institutionalized clergy in the, in the way that he's seen in the Anglican church that he was a part of. And you can understand why. And what actually happened over time, he, he was reflecting on his own experience as a Christian. And as he looked at the, the visible, physical church around him and then contemplated his own inner spiritual experience, and he, he looked... Uh, the pages of the Bible and try to understand what he found there, he began to see or to think he saw in the pages of Scripture a description of two distinct peoples, two distinct communities. On the one hand, there was the visible, earthly, historical people of Israel who actually let's face it, throughout much of their history, were fairly corrupt. You can easily see how he might have drawn a parallel with the conventional Church of England that he, and Anglican Church elsewhere. And on the other hand, you've got the, the true believers, the faithful, the faithful few, who are in union with Christ, who have a heavenly inheritance. He, he began, he thought, to see... The Bible almost speaks of these sort of two tracks, two communities of people and envisages 
to communities of people developing through history. Now, around the same time, what happened was he actually had an accident, a really serious accident, fell off a horse, had a serious leg injury and a bunch of other injuries, and he had this long um, recuperation, and his meditations went on and on and on as he's basically lying in bed recovering. And this dichotomy between two peoples, Israel and the heavenly community of the church, began to generate other dichotomies in his mind. For example, he came to see a strong dichotomy between law on the one hand and grace on the other. Israel's under law. They're required to behave in certain ways, and of course they failed. The Christian, the one in union with Christ, is under grace, so he said. And as a Christian, he'd experienced that grace, and he came to see that as radically different from the idea of the Old Testament law. And you can easily see, if you're reading Galatians superficially, you can easily see that there's that kind of apparent disjunction, isn't there? So church, Israel, or let's do it the other way around, Israel, church, law, grace. Over time, and certainly in his successors and others who followed him, the recognition that there, there's law, which is very different from grace generated a set of historical distinctions between different eras in which those principles were important. So there's the era of law in the days of Moses. Then there's the era of grace in the days of the church. And that grew, and certainly by the time you get to Schofield, the next generation, we'll look at him in a second, that became a total of seven eras or dispensations, sort of hermetically sealed periods of history narrated in scripture in which God is really operating in quite different ways. But the the two that uh, Darby saw very clearly right from an early stage was this era of law, Moses, legal demand, visible, physical, earthly community, and grace, God's kindness, no legal demands, invisible, spiritual, heavenly church. Can you see how the dichotomies all build up? Now, what then happens, as he's reading the Bible, he starts to develop this set of hermeneutical convictions that support these conceptual dichotomies. Are you with me? Hermeneutics just means how you read the Bible. So he's reading, he's reading through the Bible, and he, he starts to say, um, when you get to a particular text... Uh, It's either about Israel, visible, physical, earthly, or it might have something to do with the church, invisible, heavenly, and so on. And the (coughs) principle by which you interpret statements about Israel is, it just means what it says, literal, what the text on the page says. The principle by which you interpret things about heaven, by necessity, he has to say, is figurative or spiritual, he would say. And, and all this happens, he's, he's thinking through these thoughts as he's lying in bed, recovering from this really quite serious um, injury that he had falling off a horse. Um, by the time he'd recovered... He makes this 
series of trips to America, sorry, <laughs> in the 1870s and 1880s, where he meets, who would you believe, um, uh, Cyrus Schofield, among other people. And that takes us to the next um, uh, phase in the history that I want to talk about. But before we do that, just let me, just let, let me summarize the, the five central convictions we've got so far. First, a sharp distinction between Israel on the one hand and the church on the other. You've got these numbered points towards the bottom of the first page. Then second, this sharp distinction between earthly and heavenly. I found this great quotation from Lewis Sperry Schaefer actually that summarizes this. Um, Lewis Sperry Schaefer was a later author. Um, The dispensationalist believes, he wrote, that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to the earth with earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism. What? That's what he says. While the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. Then the third, that, that way of reading history and looking at people generates a way of reading the Bible, a hermeneutical stance. And here's a quote directly from Darby. I'll read this and then make a brief comment on it. First, in prophecy, when the Jewish church or nation is concerned, i.e. when the address is directed to the Jews, there we may look for a plain and direct testimony because earthly things were the Jews' proper portion. So if God says, "Um, I'm going to give you this land, it's like, well... Obviously, God's going to give you this land, right? If God says, um, uh, the Messiah shall reign on David's throne forever, that means the Messiah is going to reign on David's throne forever. David's going to have his throne back in Jerusalem, in the temple, and the Messiah is going to come back and reign there. If it says that the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares as they're on their way up to Mount Zion to worship God at the place where David's sitting on his heavenly throne then what it means is that the nations are literally going to get their swords and bash them until they become plowshares on their way up to Zion to worship the living God in Jerusalem where David's or David's successor is seated on his physical earthly throne in Zion. It just means what it says. So when you're looking at the Bible, he wants to say, and you've got these prophecies of the future, when they say, Israel, land, Blessing to your children, David, his throne, the temple will be rebuilt. Whatever it says, that's just what it means. By contrast, on the contrary, he continues, where the address is to the Gentiles, we may look for symbol because earthly things were not their portion and the system of revelation must, to them, be symbolical. Can you see? You've got this kind of principle of interpretation which divides Israel and Gentile church and goes... Literal, figurative. Number four, this law-grace distinction, which maps onto Moses' church. And then number five, this is, this is getting to... This will ex- explain something. We'll come to this later. This system of Israel is a physical people on earth to whom specific literal prophecies of a literal physical land have been made raises a question. Like, where are they going to be fulfilled? When are they going to be fulfilled? Now, they've not been fulfilled in the days of Jesus. Come to him in a second. They've not been fulfilled now. So when are they going to be fulfilled? The answer is the millennium. Revelation 20 when it talks about the thousand years 
during which Satan is bound, that provides a convenient thousand-year-long, because literal thousand years, thousand-year-long period into which you can dump the referent of every single literal prophecy concerning Israel from the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. You with me? Right. So we can start drawing our rapture chart. You ready? You, you always wanted me to see... The, yeah, okay. So, creation of the world. Can you all hear me? All right. Sorry if you guys on the, on the, the thing can't... Here's the creation of the world. Right? Here's the Old Testament period. Right? And you've got all these prophecies and stuff, right? And writings. Um, let's draw a picture of a prophet, shall we? Right? These people speak literal words that will be literally fulfilled. What do they refer to? Answer. This. Thousand-year-long period in the future called the millennium, referred to in Revelation 20. Now, you might be thinking, oh, hold on a second. What's in here? Good question. But that's the place in the Bible that the dispensationalist, the classic dispensationalist, looks for the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Now, there's this timeline. You can see what we've done. Right? So this is sometime in the future. Don't know when. This is in the past. We've not yet answered the question, what's in the middle? But literal fulfillment of all those prophecies, yes? Now we're going to come to Revelation 20 at some point, either later today or another time, where we'll talk about what it actually means. John Nelson Darby. Now, of course, that raises the question that you're all thinking of. Okay, well, (laughs) what on earth is happening in the middle? What is happening in the middle? And in particular, there's a little bullet point, halfway down um, page two, what happened when Jesus came? The answer is, the dispensationalists would say, or at least the classic Derbyite dispensationalists would say, turn with me to Ephesians 3, and I will show you what happened when Jesus came. Where's my water? Here it is. You remember Ephesians? As we looked at it, those of you who are here uh, a few months ago when we went through Ephesians in Bible study. um, In chapter 3, we'll just jump into verse 3. Paul is speaking of the mystery that was made known to me by revelation of which I've written briefly. Yeah, and this mystery, well, what's this mystery? Well, first thing you need to know, it's a mystery. There's a, there's a thing for you to chew on. This mystery is a mystery. Well, verse 4, look. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And here's the key thing, verse 5 which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Just think for a second. 
This mystery wasn't made known to men in other generations. These guys. They'd never heard of it. They never spoke of it. Nothing that they said relates to it at all. A hardline Derbyite would say. I'm, I'm hedging here because there's a spectrum of views. I'm drawing one end of the spectrum. We'll come to the rest of the spectrum in a second. Verse 5. So I just read verse 5. Verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Right. The mystery, that is, the fact that Gentiles can be included, or no, not included, the, the Gentiles can be in relationship with God, that mystery wasn't known before. What's the name for the community in which Gentiles are welcome in the people of God? The church. Right? So all these prophecies, right? Somewhere in here you've got Jesus and his crucifixion. That's all this Jesus stuff. And then you've got the church. But this church thing was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. From the perspective of the Old Testament, a hardline Derbyite dispensationalist is going to say, a classic dispensationalist, the church is a surprise. It's like, ooh, we didn't expect that. The reason is because the rejection of Jesus by his own people, the Jewish people, was a surprise. Jesus came to his own people with the expectation of being received by him, but by them. And as we read through the Bible, we're stunned, the dispensationalists would say, that the Jewish people rejected their own Messiah. And so what God does is he says, hold on, press pause on that whole Jewish plan thing, because all that Jewish stuff isn't going to be fulfilled here, because they've rejected their Messiah. We're going to get rid of that. All this stuff is going to be fulfilled over there. The church is an unforeseen parenthesis, an unforeseen period in history that arose because of the old covenant Jewish people's rejection of Jesus and Messiah. Here's a quotation from Darby. Just half a third of the way down that page. The Lord, having been rejected by the Jewish people is become wholly a heavenly person. So Jesus was rejected. He's now... See, the rapture chart's getting more complicated now. Enthroned in heaven, right? Keep reading. This is the doctrine that we, find, that we particularly find in the writings of the Apostle Paul. It is no longer the Messiah of the Jews, but a Christ exalted, glorified. And what does Paul say? Well, he says things like, you know, we've been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. We're one with Christ. We're in Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. 
We've been raised with Christ. We have this heavenly inheritance as the church in Christ, the heavenly man, which has nothing to do, nothing to do with any of the literal prophecies made by the old covenant prophets which concern a physical, earthly land, temple, king, blessing, sacrificial system. Yes, everything. You with me? You see how the, 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 the dichotomy starts to work? You also start to see how it starts to fall apart. But hold your horses before we start critiquing it, okay? Um, this is Vern Poitras. Um, Vern Poitras is, a, is not a dispensationalist. He's a covenant theologian and a very fine one. I've heard a rumour, by the way, that Vern Poitras knows the Bible by heart. Have you heard that rumour, no. Pastor Shaw? I heard. I, would, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if he does. He's that, that kind of guy. He's at Westminster in Philadelphia, I think. A good friend of John Frame who will one day be recognised as one of the finest theologians now living. Astonishing. Just what a gift to the church. But Vern Poitras says, look, quote, classic dispensationalists usually understand this passage to be teaching that the Old Testament does not anywhere reveal knowledge of the New Testament church. Or Palmer Robertson, whose book, he's also a covenant theologian, his book Christ of the Covenants is um, dry with a couple of moments that I go, oh, but really good as well. It's really, really good kind of textbook uh, I'm not damning with faint praise. It's a really good book. It's one or two points, I think. It's like, oh, don't be silly. But it's, it's a really good book. He says, according to classic dispensationalism, the present age is a parenthesis unforeseen by the prophets of old. I just want you to let that sink in for a second. What does that do to how you read the Bible? It's just, doesn't it just blow your mind? Now, I've, I've alluded a number of times to... Darbyite or extreme or classic dispensationalists. Truth is, the pressure of what the Bible actually says about itself is generating this massive tension within dispensationalism. At one end of the spectrum, you've got classic dispensationalists I've just described. But increasingly, you've got this spectrum of progressive dispensationalists or applicatory dispensationalists or some other subtype of dispensationalists who want to say, yeah, you can kind of find hints of bits about what turn out to be about the church if you look closely at the Old Testament. But it's all figurative. It's all non-literal. It's all heavenly. And it's nothing to do with all the stuff that's about Israel. Yeah, you still have two purposes. Um, there's a, a book by, what's the guy's name? Uh, I'm going to look it up. His name is Paul Lee Tan. Let's see if I can find this interesting quotation. Um, I can't find it. I, I'll, I'll dig it up at some point. Or maybe we'll look at it in a minute or two. But there is a spectrum among dispensationalists. And, and really, you can see what's happening. Wherever you look in the New Testament, it constantly quotes the Old Testament and says it's all about Jesus. <laughs> so, so the New Testament keeps doing this annoying thing here and this annoying thing here. But classic dispensationalists want to say, no, 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 no. But they're also realists and they're trying to read the Bible. So what they'll do is this. 
They'll say, yeah, 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 okay, you're allowed to have a little bit of that. Right? But it's all kind of hints and figurative. And crucially, this... This is the real deal. This is what it's all about. There remains an expectation of all of those literal promises being fulfilled. Just think about that. Literal king, literal nation, literal temple with literal sacrifices and literal Gentile nations smashing literal swords into literal plowshares as they go and find a red heifer so they can do the third day and seventh day ritual in numbers, whichever chapter it is, to be purified so they can go to the temple of the Lord. Literally. Right, let me pause for a second. Mrs. Claghorn, you had your hand up. Pardon, or Mr. Claghorn, sorry, I think. I... Sorry, my apologies. I'm asking rhetorical questions in the Bible study. I should, yeah, thank you. thank you. Let me pause there. Any questions about this? I mean, I've got 50 gazillion questions about this, right? But can you see how it works, quote unquote? You're saying literal sacrifices too? Yes, yes, sir. There are people trying to breed red heifers in preparation. Really. And we'll see, actually, one of the, the things that is to thank God for about our dispensationalist brothers and sisters is, like, they really believe the Bible. I mean, they got it wrong. <laughs> but, but they love the Word of God. Okay, um, is it clack on? Yeah, I, I don't know what is the actual genealogical relationship between dispensationalism and radical two kingdoms theology. I think you can, you, can, um, you can see some conceptual similarities, and they're exactly what you're saying. There are these dichotomies, heavenly, earthly, physical, non-physical, and so on and so forth. And I think there is something... Well, here, here's the problem. Like, we are dichotomous beings. We have a body and we have a soul. And one of the problems of Christian philosophy, when it goes wrong, is it allows that idea of that dichotomy to propagate everywhere in all kinds of directions where it doesn't belong. Um, so you get pastors, literally, I've heard pastors say, you know, your, your, your job as an economist or as a, a school teacher or as a, a, a doctor or whatever it is, uh, has value because it provides resources to fund the ministry of the gospel. And that's it. Oh, and it also allows you to feed your family. But it doesn't have any contribution to make to God's plan for the world. Right? It doesn't do anything meaningful in itself. Like building bridges or um, uh, uh, doing economic analysis or helping people with their tax returns or... Um, doing research into quantum physics. No, none of those things are anything to do with um, Genesis 1, creation mandate. It's good for funding gospel ministry and putting bread on the table, that's it. So it's a sacred secular dichotomy, can you see? There's lots and lots of 
wrong dichotomies that get spun off this latent, true dichotomy that we are physical, embodied souls. All right, let's just talk about... So that was all the (laughs) British John Nelson Darby. But it's not all our fault, right? Because one of you all, by the name of Cyrus Schofield, uh, grabbed a bunch of this stuff and... um, uh, he, he was born in uh, 1843. In 1909, he published the so-called Schofield Reference Bible. Now, I just, I just I talked to Pastor Shaw about this earlier today. I mean, can you imagine, you know, spending a lot of time writing Bible study notes and then publishing the Shaw Reference Bible? I'm like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether he ever took a test for narcissism. I just think that's like, how, what is that? What kind of self-awareness? thing is going on there. It's just like, don't you understand what that looks like? I just think it's really strange that people would, but it's, it's been a massive success. And just think about this for a second. If you, if you have a system of theology with all these dichotomies, uh, Israel Church, earthly heavenly, law, grace, physical, spiritual, uh, literal, figurative, how do you propagate it? Well, it all stems, in one sense, from a hermeneutical conviction. How do you read the Bible? So what about if we have a Bible that contains the notes within the Bible that tells you how to read the Bible? That would be really cool, wouldn't it? Because then we could get people to believe almost anything we told them. And so for the first time in 400 years since the Geneva Bible, somebody published a Bible with notes in it, and it was Cyrus Schofield. He published it in 1909. He revised it in 1917 with a revision basically headed in the direction of allowing more hints of the church back here, right? But basically, what he did was to enshrine in the notes this literal interpretation of Scripture. And here's a quote from Schofield that that kind of clarifies what's going on here. This is halfway down the second page. It is then permitted... While holding firmly the historical verity, that is truthfulness, reverently to spiritualize the historical scriptures. Now, what does he mean by that? He's distinguishing historical scriptures from what he calls prophetic scriptures in a second. And he's distinguishing spiritualize from what he will call literal. So if you've got... I didn't... I mean, I've got, I've got an example here. Let me just dig it up. Hold on. on. Page 9, page 45. Here we are. Where are we? Right. Um, let's see if this one is here. Is this any good? No, it's not very good. Right. Um, he's got an example of the history of Isaac and Ishmael which he says, you know, on the basis of Galatians 4, yeah, you can sort of spiritualize the historical account of Isaac and Ishmael and see a picture of the church sort of hidden away there. You remember what Galatians 4 is all about? The Hagar uh, the, had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman, and the free woman is 
the, the church who's above, who's above, you know, remember Galatians 4, okay? Well, you can't really get away from that. It just says on, in Galatians 4 how you've got to read Genesis. So he puts in the notes in Genesis that, okay, you can have, with these historical scriptures, historical texts, you can, and I hate saying this word, it drives me nuts, spiritualize them. It sounds like you're doing something to the Bible, doesn't it? You spiritualize them, and, and they have this sort of hidden meaning to do with the church or to do with Jesus. But, notice the contrast. In prophetic scriptures, quote, we reach the ground of absolute literalness. Figures, that is like figures of speech, are often found in the prophetic scriptures, but the figure invariably has a literal fulfillment. Get this. Not one instance exists of a spiritual or figurative fulfillment of prophecy. What he's saying is that spiritual means, in this context, not literal. And he's saying literal in the sense of if it says Israel, it means it, etc., etc., etc. He's saying there isn't a single example. Continues, Jerusalem is always Jerusalem. Israel is always Israel. Zion is always Zion. Prophecies may never be spiritualized, but are always literal. Now, part of the problem with this, right, is this way of thinking of interpreting the Bible. Is it spiritual or is it literal? And it's just a, it's a nonsense dichotomy. What we do is we read the Bible. It's a book which tells us what it refers to by other texts that pick up the themes and the images and the symbolism and so on within it. But once you've got this framework of it's either literal or it's something else, he's just got that framework and he says everything prophetic is awaiting a literal fulfillment. And if it hasn't happened yet, that's fine because it's, it's going to happen up here in the millennium. You with me? Right, so... That's the first central conviction. He retains the sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Um, he defines more clearly these distinctions between different, what he calls dispensations or ages. And what's interesting here is um, you do find in some covenant theologians, they use the term dispensation. But they don't use it in the same sense. They use it just like to mean era of history. Um, or period of time. Some theologians will talk about the dispensation of Moses. They don't mean to describe the character of that era in the way that dispensationalists describe it. They're just using the word in a loose sense. The point about dispensationalism is that they'll want to say, uh, no, these, these ages are basically hermetically sealed off from each other. So God deals with his people in a particular way in the age of innocency during, in the Garden of Eden. And then something happens, the fall, and God changes. It's different now. And the stuff that happens in this age really isn't connected at all to what happened before, except that it kind of, historically, it's connected to happened next. But there's no fulfillment of that developing plan. There's not a single plan. There are seven ages hermetically sealed from each other. In fact, you find in some dispensationalists that, um, well, just finish off this list of um, dispensations, innocency, conscience, um, up to Noah, the era of human government, the age of human government, Noah to Babel, promise, Abraham to Egypt, law, Moses to John the Baptist. Well, that's quite a lot, right? But, you know, all goes into one, one bucket. Um, grace, the church age, that's the unforeseen bit. Because remember, all the stuff in Moses and all the prophets, 
all the prophets are speaking about a literal land of Israel and you've got to keep the law, which is a Moses thing, or it's a millennium thing, if it's in the future. And then the age of the kingdom, um, the millennium, which hasn't happened yet, according to dispensationalism. Um, What was I going to say? I was going to say something in passing about one of those dispensations. Oh, yes. Um, What are you going to do, if you have this way of thinking about things, what are you going to do with those parts of the teaching of Jesus which occur before, well, the, the life of Jesus obviously all occurs before the cross and before the beginning of the church age, and it looks law-like in character. So take, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you've heard that it was said, you shall uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, etc. Jesus is there setting out what dispensationalists regard as a kind of revision of the law, which has no relevance for the church age. None. So a hardline dispensationalist is going to say that the, the Lord's Prayer is not for the church. Because it's a description of how to pray during the end of the age of law. Think about it for a second. Of course, it's, 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 well, it's not even that. It doesn't have, we're so used to the kind of reformed third use of the law, we can't get away from the idea that laws should be guidelines for us. No, no, no. No, it's just a different age, the dispensationalist wants to say. It's, it's a really remarkable and weird way to read scripture. Very strange. And of course, this final element, which gives my beautiful little diagram here its name, just go back to our history, our, our, our timeline. You've got all this... Um, Stuff here, prophecies about Israel, you with me? Going to be literally fulfilled. And okay, some dispensationalists will go a little bit soft, compromisers like, you know, um, John MacArthur or something. And they'll allow, they're leaky dispensationalists. They'll allow a little bit of it to have reference in here. And MacArthur is much more leaky than that. He's, he's not like Schofield and um, Darby really at all. But really, all this stuff is about. Israel there. So, here's the church. Here's all these people like you and me. Right? There's Mrs. Vrezo and my wife. And there's me over there. And there's um, Pastor Shaw and his wife, Brianne. It's all these people, right? Thank you. I'm glad you like it. We're going to get in the way a little bit during this period, right? Aren't we? Because this is all about Israel literally, physically reconstituted in the land with all these sacrifices and stuff. We're really nothing to do with them. We're a second track of salvation, unforeseen, and nothing really to do with the millennium period, which is promised back here. So what's going to happen to us just before the millennium? The rapture. You see where the rapture comes from now. And conveniently enough, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, if you turn your Bible upside down and read it, seems to talk about a rapture. Because if you turn your Bible upside down, it looks like 
Jesus is taking people away from earth to heaven. Of course, if you turn your Bible the right way up and actually read what it says, you notice that the direction is the other way. It's about Jesus bringing back with him those who've fallen asleep in him. It's not about a rapture at all, but it's a kind of handy text if you're just kind of looking for something. And that's what happens to the church. So the church gets raptured just before the millennium. And then a thousand years later, they come back down again. And then you have the eternal state about which we don't know very much because most of scripture isn't about it. Remember, because most of scripture is all about the millennium. Thank you very much. My first ever rapture chart. I don't know whether you like that. No, 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 no. no. Don't, don't, don't be sarcastic, right? So you said the church will be raptured, but that's also the people that are, that are held in the... They, they too will be raptured. Who's that, sorry? People, people who aren't believers. People who aren't believers are going to stay here. Okay. And they're going to go through the Great Tribulation. Okay, you asked for it, right? There's a bunch of... I missed out most of the fun stuff, right? Because there's a bunch of other stuff all around here, mostly in the book of Revelation. This is why I didn't do it in the, my handout, because if I tried to put all this on one diagram to start with, you'd have gone, what in the world is this? And also, the best way to draw a rapture chart is with your hair sort of flying out wildly and multiple different colored whiteboard markers. It's just the only, it's traditional, really. Um, so there's all this stuff in here, the Battle of... Um, Gog and Magog and the Battle of Armageddon and the, uh, the beast from the abyss and all those things that look like um, locusts, but maybe they're helicopters or maybe it's the United Nations or the European Union or the medieval papacy or something. But anyway, it's, but the book of Revelation is full of really cool stuff. And remember, it's a prophetic book, the book of Revelation, because it's about the future. So is it going to be spiritual or figurative? Or is it going to be literal? Literal, which is great, because now we can send, spend, sell loads and loads and loads of really cool novels spinning out all the different chapters of the book of Revelation to talk about what the future is going to be like. Yeah? So there's all this cr- wild stuff that clutters up. If you Google Raptor Chart, okay, I'll allow you to Google it once. Google Raptor Chart and then click Images. But sit down first. And most of it is all about the crazy complexity that goes on here, the, the Great Tribulation. And you're raptured in the middle of the Great Tribulation, or is it before the Great Tribulation? Um, just so you know, classic premillennialism, you're raptured after the Great Tribulation. And the promises are not literal sacrificing animals and stuff again. Classic premillennialists are much more orthodox and mainstream than, than, than this, right? But that's basically where all the really, really wild stuff comes. And the book of Revelation, let's face it, 22 chapters of quite cool stuff if you're going to go and interpret that literally, which is what they do. All right. So, that's your rapture chart. What are we supposed to make of this? Just turn over to the last page. Let me make a few comments. I'm not going to try and do all this in detail. But I want to say a few things because there are some things that are really good about dispensationalism. Um, Not, sorry, not good about dispensationalism. Good about dispensationalists. 
like, I could tell you a story of um, Jamie McNaughton and his family. Jamie was a contemporary of mine when I was um, in the first job I ever had in a church in 2000. You remember Jamie? His wife, I forget her name. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, it didn't matter. Um, there were six of us, young apprentice pastors, uh, all about the same age. And Jamie was put in charge because it was obvious to our senior pastor and to all the rest of us that he was easily the most mature Christian and the most godly man out of all the six of us. He had come from a dispensationalist background. His father and mother had been raised Plymouth Brethren, and that Brethren church had gone a bit more sort of Baptist, evangelical, mainstream, got themselves a pastor at last. He'd sort of come out of that and become sort of Baptist, evangelical. But his... Um, his, his humility and his concern for personal godliness were really exemplary. And I remember meeting his parents and, um, uh, and, his, and his brother and just thinking, they're just really, they love the Lord. They really love the Lord Jesus. And well, why would that be? Well, think where this came from. It came from John Nelson Darby despairing at the corruptness and the tokenism and the ungodliness of the Victorian church and thinking this can't be it I'm not having this I, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'd rather quit my job as a clergyman than serve alongside this shower of reprobates and I, I think in many brethren circles that concern, deep concern for personal godliness has endured so praise God um, second clearly they're concerned to honor the truth of the scriptures they are um it takes something to um with such elaborate detail and with such conviction to maintain a cluster of ideas which um well really you're alone in church history and it's like you have respect for somebody who really clings to their principles, even though you think their principles are slightly wonky. And they really believe that the Bible is true. And more than that, it's interesting. Um, they, dispensationalism manifests at some level a concern for the unity of the Bible. And you might think, well, how is that? Because they're chopping it up into hermetically sealed containers and separating them all from each other. Um, and this bit here about the church is nothing really much to do with all the stuff before it. But just think about it for a second. It is obvious, if you just read the Bible, it's obvious that the way things worked in Bronze Age Israel and the way things worked in first century church communities is different, right? Well, lots of people, when they're faced with that difference, they'll just say, the Bible contradicts itself and walk away. And they're not concerned to have a system that holds the Bible together so that you can affirm the truth of all of it and the unity of God's revelation. Covenant theology, historic Reformed covenant theology, is, I think, the right way of explaining how you can have a unified revelation that has such differences between the days of Moses and the days of Abraham and the days of Paul the Apostle and our days. Because we don't sacrifice sheep and goats and bulls. But they did back then. So, so we, have a, we have a way of understanding God's progressive revelation that allows us to affirm its unity in spite of its diversity. Well, dispensationalists do as well because they care that God isn't contradicting himself. They're not like liberal theologians who just say, ah, yeah, the Bible contradicts itself. 
And moreover, number four, um, they're convinced that the Bible speaks about history, which it does. And so many Christians really do, in the wrong sense, spiritualize everything. Like resurrection, that's spiritual. Miracles of Jesus, that's spiritual. You know, um, the virgin birth, that's spiritual. None of it ever happened. You know, the book of Job, oh, there was never a man called Job, but it's a spiritual book. We can learn things from it. And I just want to say, well, I prefer dispensationalism to that because at least they're convinced that the Bible connects with and speaks about history. And they believe in a God who is going to do what he said, even though they think what he said isn't really what he said. Yeah? So I, I, I'll take dispensationalism over liberal Protestantism. Yeah? A hundred times out of a hundred. Because they love Jesus and they're just wildly wrong in their reading of the Bible for reasons that are kind of understandable when you know where they come from. So, okay, how, how would I approach... Okay, I've got a bunch of responses. How would I approach responding to dispensationalism? Um, I'm, I'm not going to go through them. I'll just, I'll just mention the first one. Uh, who's got 2 Corinthians 1.20 memorized? Don't look it up. All the promises of God find their yes in him. How many are the promises of God? How many of these promises of God? Like, every single one of them. Right? It's all about Jesus. And it's about the, the church and the future because it's first about Jesus. Just think how we interpret Scripture. Just take, one, uh, take a random example. Um, uh, Genesis 3, well, there we are, exactly. Genesis 3, brilliant example. So Genesis 3 speaks about a serpent crusher. Someone's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's about Jesus, yes? So why is that anything to do with us? Well, a couple of examples. Because we live in the age where the devil has been conquered. And so the church, the body of Christ, is now free to grow, and the nations can't be deceived anymore, Romans, uh, Revelation 20. is really what the, rev- the millennium's about. Um, so we ourselves can expect victory over evil. The devil would love you to think that those temptations he places before you can't be resisted, but they can. Because Genesis 3.15, which is about Jesus, <coughs> relates to our lives in Christ in the church. Yeah, you with me? So if you, if you had a dispensationalist friend and you said, okay, let's just let's go out for a beer and let's just talk about one verse from the Bible. You pick your verse, I'll pick mine. <laughs> right? You take 2 Corinthians 1.20 and you just keep saying, yeah, but all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And it's like, yeah, but, but what about the land? What about the millennium? Yeah, but all the promises of God. Yeah, just keep coming back to that. And, and don't beat them up and don't be unkind and so on. But, but that's a place to start. Now, there's a bunch of other things I'd want to say, which we will actually pick up in different ways in future sessions where we're talking about one or two other bits of eschatology that are pending but I think that'll do for me for now. Goodness gracious. We've got two minutes left. Second Corinthians, what do you say? Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, Mr. Barnes. or the mentality or the outlook of, of how 
one that a Christian under dispensationalism should act and behave. Yeah, it yeah, almost yeah. sounds like, well, just send all my money to Israel and I'll just wait until I get raptured. Right, yeah, yeah. However, at the end, what the, the, when the eternal state comes, mm -hmm. supposedly, mm -hmm. They believe then that the Gentiles that have been, that are in heaven with that are spiritual in heaven with Christ and the Jews who are earthly will be together. Right, and right, right. Jesus will reign over them. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so what's the eternal state in dispensationalism? Um, I want to answer this really carefully because I think this is one of those areas where there is variation because of the the inescapable pressure of biblical teaching about like the resurrection and the renewal of the heavens and the earth and so on and so forth. So 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21, 22. Um, so I think there'll be some who say, yeah, renewed heavens and earth, Jews and Gentiles together, resurrected. There may be others who say, yeah, basically what happens is like, effectively like that, so the eternal state is a kind of disembodied one, which frankly isn't too far from the misunderstanding that many um, non-dispensationalist evangelicals have. Many, 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 many evangelicals have this idea that we're going to spend eternity, or not, not eternity, uh, the, ever, the eternal state, the everlasting state, will be one of disembodied existence. It's like, well, no, no, right? No, that's, that's wrong. Um, but I think what you find in dispensationalism is the same, all those confusions permeating in. But there are some um, dispensationalists who are, you know, the, the resurrection of the dead is the resurrection of the body. It's an embodied existence. And then you start thinking about the created world and the doctrine of, the doctrine of sin does not mean there's something wrong with the physical world. It means that the Romans 8, the physical world is waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Then it's going to be fine, thank you. So why would you not have an embodied, everlasting, deathless, physical existence? And I think there are some dispensationalists who think that that's okay. Um, this, a friend of mine at college, the theological college years ago, when I was at seminary, he, he'd come out of a dispensationalist background. And he said he thinks that dispensationalism, in the end, will just collapse into historic premillennialism, which basically removes all the crazy stuff in green, most of the crazy stuff, um, and you have this millennium, but it's not the only thing to which the Old Testament prophecies refer. So they're, they're comp your, 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 your premill, your normal classic premillennialist, just believes that Jesus is coming back before this long period of time, rather than we're in this long period of time and you erase all the craziness and Jesus is coming back at the end of it, which is post-millennialism, which is what the Bible teaches. Um, right? <laughs> right? Um, so so what I think this probably happened in the next hundred years. Um, the, 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 the dispensationalist concern for the text of Scripture will drive them towards classic pre-mill or maybe a-mill, and from there, all bets are off. And, and there'll still be a few who you're clinging to their Derbyite rapture charts. And, you know. Well, what's kind of neat, though, is that, I mean, again, it, it has an effect on how we live and right, how it society does. ends up. Yeah. But at the end of the day, both they and 
we do think that we will be together. Yes, that's Jesus. true. Yeah. So, so somewhere along the line, that's still true. Of course, the, the um, just 30 seconds more, the, the practical cash value of this for dispensationalism is that you're constantly supposed to believe that you are right here, right on the verge of the rapture. Any moment now. And the reason is because the New Testament is full of texts that say soon or in just a little while or this generation or um, uh, you know, we're in these last days and so on and so forth, which leaves open the question, which we will return to next week, what are all, all those texts about? There's certainly something that is about to happen at the time when the New Testament authors wrote dispensationalists want you to believe that that thing that's about to happen wasn't about to happen because the New Testament texts were written over here, but it is now about to happen soon. Well, that's not right. I mean, soon doesn't mean 2,000 years. So what was that event about which those coming soon or this generation or last day's texts are about? And how does that shape our understanding of history? And you might get another non-wrapped chart next week if you come back and behave yourselves. All right, we're done. We're run out of time. Thank you, those of you who are online, for joining us. Hope you had a good time as well, and um, some of this was comprehensible. Um, uh, anybody got any dispensationalist friends? Seriously, like neighbours, friends, yeah? Family? Jamie. Right. Right. Godly, yeah, yeah. I'm embarrassed sometimes by how much more they love Jesus. Right, right. Well, let's, let's pray, and we'll pray for our dispensationalist friends and neighbors, because we've probably got more than we realize. Yeah, let's pray. Merciful Father, we're thankful to you for the victory of Jesus and for the kingdom of which we're now citizens. We pray for our dispensationalist friends, our neighbors, co-workers, and relatives, and so on. Uh, we ask, Father, that you would incline us all the more to imitate the godliness that we see in so many of them and the love of Christ and the love for the scriptures. And we pray, Father, if it would be fruitful that you would open up conversations between us and them and help us to uh, be great witnesses to them of the richness and depth that you have kindly revealed to us in your word, the Bible, so that we may share some of that with them. And we do praise and thank you that, as um, Mr. Barnes said, we will be united with all your people on the last day uh, when we see Jesus face to face. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for coming.